Thank you very much, Anthony, lady and gentlemen. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and appreciate very much your interest. And I hope I brought with me some thoughts that are of interest for you. So we have plenty of time for your criticism and your, <laughs> your, and your remarks. Because I think I cover some difficult ground. Mm -hmm. And the title I gave uh, my little talk is um, The Global Currency Plot. Uh, it's a um, translation of the German uh, title. A friend of mine, an American guy, he said that is going to sell. <laughs> so take the global currency plot to get the ball rolling in philosophy. There's a field called epistemology, and it deals with the origin, <coughs> scope, and limits of our human knowledge. And there are two sources through which we human beings acquire knowledge about reality. The first source is experience. We see, listen, touch, feel, count. But is experience a reliable source of knowledge, of scientific knowledge? That is, knowledge that provides us with regularities or laws in the sense of if A, then B, or if A, increases by x percent, a b changes by y percent? And the answer is no. Experience cannot. And the reason is the so-called induction problem. For example, people in the 18th century thought all swans were white. Why? Well, all swans observed so far had white feathers. And then in 1697, black swans were discovered in Australia. And people realized that the statement, all swans are white, was false. Just one single observation was enough to disprove a long-held belief as untrue. Experience cannot tell us whether a theory or hypothesis is true or not. And now you may object Aren't we using experience in natural sciences? And doesn't, doesn't it lead to good results? Just look at the progress we made in natural sciences in the last decades. Indeed, natural scientists rely on experience, performing experiments, conducting tests in laboratories, and they have obviously provided us with reliable knowledge. And this is because in nature there are obvious laws or regularities which can be discovered through experience. But even experience cannot give us definite proof that what we learn is irrefutably true. There's a second source of knowledge. I just talked about experience. There's a second source of knowledge. And it springs directly from our reason. It is called a priori knowledge. The term a priori stands for knowledge independent from experience, knowledge that cannot be denied without creating a logical contradiction. In logic, for instance, we have the law of the excluded middle. A proposition, a sentence, is true or false. It cannot be true and false at the same time. Or take the phrase humans act. If you deny this sentence and say humans do not act, you act and create a logical contradiction that is saying something wrong. You cannot deny an a priori without presupposing its validity. 
a priori knowledge irrefutably provides true knowledge about human reality. I felt these preliminary remarks were necessary because my book, The Global Currency Plot, builds on a priori theoretical thinking. I use a priori theory to unfold the logical implications of human action, paying particular attention to the institution of the state as we know it today. In my book, I will give you an idea of what lies ahead if ideas and concepts currently popular are taken to their logical conclusion. I give you a very brief summary of my book first. The ideal that is the optimal number of currencies in this world is one. States as we know them today continue to expand their power. Their expansion cannot be limited. Out of self-interest, states monopolize the production of money. The dominant political ideology of our time is what I call social democratic socialism. States, united by the ideology of social democratic socialism, form a cartel favoring the creation of a single world fiat currency and moving towards a world government. This process would, if not stopped, and it can be stopped, result in the most sinister dystopia the world has possibly ever seen. The solution is to end the state's monopoly on money, allowing for a free market in money, where people have the freedom to demand the kind of money they wish to use for their purposes and to rigorously shrink the state. From an economic point of view, the ideal number of currencies, as I said, in the world is one. If all people use the same money, the productive effects of money use, in particular for economic calculation, are maximized. Let's assume you have two monies, money A and money B. If money A is better than money B, people will choose money A. Money B is unnecessary. And if money A and B are of the same quality, one is expendable. As you can see, the ideal number of currencies in this world is one. Where does money come from? The Austrian economist Karl Menger, he lived from 1840 to 1921, has argued that money emerged spontaneously from people's voluntary transactions in the free market and from a commodity such as precious metals. When you look at the history of money, you will find that people preferred commodity money in the form of precious metals, gold and silver in particular. And it is easy to understand why. Gold and silver meet all the requirements, making them sound money. They are scarce, they are durable, transportable, divisible, mintable, and they represent a relatively high value per unit of weight. In the last quarter of the 19th century, gold served as world money. The greater part of the world had adopted gold as means of payment, nationally and internationally. Now you may wonder why we no longer use precious metals as money. Why do we use fiat currencies such as the US dollar, the euro, the British pound? The answer is because of the state, as I will point out in a moment. And before that, let me briefly explain the term fiat money. Fiat money has three characteristics. Number one, it is money monopolized by the state. Second, fiat money is created through bank credit expansion. Whenever a bank provides a loan to a consumer or producer, it increases the money stock. And three, fiat money is dematerialized money in the form of colorful paper tickets and bits and bytes on computer hard drives.
is. Fiat money is not harmless. Fiat money suffers from economic and ethical flaws. It is inflationary, loses its purchasing power over time, as you all know. It is socially unjust, enriching some at the expense of many others. It causes boom and bust cycles. It is responsible for exuberance, for crashes, for bank panics. It drives the economy sooner or later into over-indebtedness. That is, borrowers can no longer service their debt. Now let me ask the question, what is the state? I will give you a positive definition, and a positive definition means that I tell you how it really is. And the state is a territorial monopolist of coercion, of ultimate decision-making, and has the right to levy taxes. Such a state tends to expand, to grow over time, by increasing the tax burden on the people, by issuing more and more regulations and laws, and by increasingly interfering in the market process by going to war. Why is that? Well, think of a private property owner for a second. He has a strong incentive to maximize the capital value of his property. A farmer, for instance, will cultivate his land with great care so that he can <coughs> secure an income from it today and tomorrow. In our modern states, it is very different. Here, the state's coercive monopoly is not privately owned, but publicly owned. It is actually in the hands of temporary administrators, politicians, as we call them. Politicians do not seek to maximize the capital value of the common good. They want to maximize their influence and income, their personal profit while in power. At the same time, voters are incentivized to vote for those politicians who are expected to give them benefits. Benefits that they, the voters, cannot or do not want to pay for, that other people should have to pay for. And against this backdrop, it is not surprising that the state, as we know it today, continues to grow over time. The state also wants to monopolize money production. Why? By issuing its own money, it is fairly easy for the state to expropriate people's property without their consent, namely by applying the inflation tax. The state, as we know it today, has an insatiable appetite for money. It needs a lot of money to hand out benefits, to buy voters' support, in other words, to bribe people to re-elect whoever is in power. It took many decades, but eventually the state succeeded in monopolizing money production and replacing gold with its own fiat currency. On 15th August 1971, the United States of America ended the gold redeemability of the U.S. dollar. This unilateral decision by the Americans led to a worldwide fiat currency system. It was an act of monetary expropriation on a truly epic scale. The truth is that it was an illegal, a criminal act that settled us with fiat money. However, my story doesn't end here. The current situation of many national fiat currencies in this world is not an equilibrium, it is not a stable situation. In fact, the global fiat money regime as it is today has a rather uncomfortable future in store for us. This is owed to the states as we know them today and their ideology of social democratic socialism. And I contend, and you may challenge that later on, that the dominant ideology in today's world is what I call social democratic socialism. And this is what I assume in my book. This is basically the only assumption I make. 
It is not Russian brand socialism with a bloody revolution and outright expropriation of the means of production through the state. It is German brand socialism. It is piecemeal socialism that uses parliamentary majority to establish socialist policies, a gradual move towards socialism. Under the ideology of social democratic socialism, states are eager to form a cartel, reduce competition amongst each other, and harmonize their economic and social policies. The states also strive to expand their power, centralize decision-making, and form a single government body. These efforts are not limited to certain parts of the world. They are aimed at the whole world. The logical goal is to form a central world government authority. What every single state that has fallen prey to democratic socialism wants is also what a community of states wants, to control the production of money and to expand the money supply at will to secure and expand its rule. Creating a single world currency is a means to an end for democratic socialism. Its supporters recognize that a single world state cannot be established directly. The national resistance that would have to be overcome is simply too great. The detour, the indirect way through which democratic socialism can achieve its goal is creating a single world currency under state control. The euro area is a case in point. In 1999, the governments of 11 nation states gave up people's monetary sovereignty, adopting the euro, a fiat currency issued by a supranational body, the European Central Bank. The national economies of the euro area are now effectively in the hands of the governing council of the ECB, which is effectively outside the control of national parliaments. The European Union in Brussels is increasingly empowered to act as a supranational government agency that transcends nation-states. What happened in Europe can serve as a model for establishing a single world fiat currency to be followed by a world government. Technically speaking, this can be achieved by creating a currency basket with the name of, I would suggest, global Fixing the exchange rates of national currencies against the currency basket, defending the measure for some time and eventually making it irreversible. At the beginning, the single fiat currency could be administered by a cartel of national central banks, later replaced by a world central bank. What are the consequences of creating a single fiat world currency? A state-controlled fiat currency for the world would bring with it all the problems of national fiat currencies, and it would cause economic, political, and cultural damage, dwarfing that of national fiat currencies. Money users will no longer have choices to escape or escape options. They will be at the mercy of the single fiat money, the single world fiat money. The world central bank will not have to fear that dissatisfied users of its money will migrate to other currencies because there will be no other currencies left. The potential for abuse of the single world fiat currency for political purposes is overwhelming. The states will encourage the world central bank to pursue a monetary policy which they, they can finance themselves and their friends and supporters as cheaply as possible with inflationary money. No region of the world will be able to escape the boom and bust cycles inevitably caused by the issuance of fiat money. 
the world's central bank could ban cash, leaving people with no alternative for anonymous payments. People's money will be locked in the banking system. It can no longer be withdrawn. The world central bank could, by making interest rates negative, and we have seen <coughs> that this is possible, wipe out bank liabilities in the form of site and savings deposits, a large part of many people's life savings. The world central bank could issue a central bank digital currency and simply force it on people since they can no longer switch to an alternative currency. Combine a world central bank digital currency, and I think <coughs> this issue is of great interest, Anthony, as you said in your introduction. Combine a world central bank digital currency with a social credit score, and you get a digital world prison from which George Orwell's 1984 dystopia would look like a balmy summer breeze. You may ask, isn't that an overly pessimistic assessment of the concept of a single world currency? Well, a single world currency freely and voluntarily chosen by the people in the free market would be truly wonderful, economically speaking. It would be a great support for the productive and peaceful cooperation of the people around the globe. However, a single world fiat currency created by the power of the states would be nightmarish, catastrophic, for the fiat money of the state is by no means sound money. It's bad money. It's incompatible with a free economic and societal system. If not stopped and pushed back, it paves the way to a totalitarian system. So what is the solution? First and foremost, the general public should be informed about the true nature of fiat money and all its consequences. Second, people must relearn that there are no economically or ethically compelling arguments why the state should have a monopoly on money and that sound money can only come from the free market. And third, we must remember that if we want peace and prosperity, we must seek to limit the state as strictly as possible. The state is responsible for the most pressing problems of our time. It is not the solution. Thank you very much for your attention. I'm looking forward to your criticism and comments. Thank you. Thank you.